So Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. They called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, we believe the words of Isaiah, where he says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so we too uh, pray. In line with Isaiah, we say that your word will stand long after we are gone, long after... Uh, this world has continued on its path. Your word will be there. And we praise you for that, and we thank you, and ask that your word would come to life to us even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one little book that has been a great encouragement to myself, uh, I pick it up occasionally here and there, is uh, a little tiny booklet called The Valley of Vision. It, it's a uh, little booklet that's made up of prayers from the Puritans. And uh, as, as you go through and you read this booklet, it doesn't take long before you realize the heart of the Puritans, um, it, it's so rich. They have such an awareness of 
the gospel. And, and the, the book, The Valley of Vision, is actually entitled from the very first prayer that is in the little booklet. And as I was reading it recently, I thought, this, this prayer is so in line with everything that we've been covering in this middle portion of Mark that I wanted to share it with you here. Um, the prayer begins, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights hemmed in by mountains of sin. I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up that to be low is to be high that the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. And here for the fourth Sunday, we are in the middle portion here of Mark in act two, where the issue of recognizing this paradox of Christian discipleship is so key for us. As I did previously warn you, there would be significant amount of repetition, but the repetition is important to catch that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high. And in this, in this middle portion here of Mark, as, as the disciples are on the road, they're walking, they're heading from the north land in Galilee down to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, we will see this third and final act, and we will see the lowest you can go and the highest you can be raised. And meanwhile, this morning, we will see for a third time through this cycle in the middle, the necessity of the cross, which will then be followed by teaching on discipleship. And again, we will see here the disciples again and again do not seem to get it. They seem to be clueless even after Jesus has spent so much time making it clear that the path of discipleship is humility and being a servant. And so we're going to get at this through three sections as we see first the king on the cross, and then we'll see who is on the king's right and left. And then we'll conclude by noting King Jesus, the son of David. So first, the king on the cross. Friends, you need to realize, even as Jesus is saying these words, that in the ancient world, there was a consistent view that God, or the plural gods, as in the case of the Romans and the Greeks, that they were powerful. They were often incited to wrath. And, and due to the activities of mankind, the patience of the gods, quote unquote, were always being tested and, were, and, and they were often enraged. And so therefore, the need to sacrifice to appease the gods. And so the idea is, hey, I, I scratch your back, God of rain, uh, by giving a sacrifice, and you will scratch my back by raining on the land, or in the case, if need be, of the sun, God. And this wrong-headed thinking uh, has an element of, of truth. There, there is no God of rain. There's no God of sun. But there was a right sense that the, that the creator was displeased with our human activity. 
because of what the Bible calls sin is ultimately unbelief in God, which leads to a rebellious action. And so, yes, this God has every right to be angry. And he did indeed need a sacrifice. But what the disciples and all of humanity had long missed was that while payment was required for sin, that God himself was going to be the one to bring the needed payment for sin. That he was leaving all of heaven to bring this for all of his people prior to a changed heart have been traitors. They've been unfaithful traitors. And a, and, and a payment must be made. A sacrifice must be made. C.S. Lewis, in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, he says that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, that the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And this, friends, is why Jesus came. It's why we read here Jesus foretelling for the third time, explicitly making it clear, his death and coming resurrection. Ultimately, it is God the Father who delivers Jesus over to the Jewish leaders, who deliver him over to the Gentiles, who then deliver him over to death. But then, even as Christ says, after three days, he would rise. And this is the good news that all Christians base everything else off of. Christ dead, buried, and raised. The God of the highest heavens went through hell to stand in our place, to raise, yes, even us up with him. And so then you say, well, if this is the case and he's risen up, who will be risen up with him? Who's on the king's right and left hand? Now, I'm not entirely sure. We're not entirely sure, but it seems possible that James and John at this moment, they're thinking, oh, raising up. This means glory for the king. So it gets their minds thinking about greatness, about stature, about position. And so they come to Jesus with a request. Now, you must understand when my kids come to me and they say, and this happens here and there, dad, just say yes. I always, well, I've learned the hard way. You always say no uh, right off the bat. But then you say something like, okay, okay, now tell me what it is you want. We'll see what we can work out here. And it is almost as if the disciples just come to Jesus and say, well, just say yes. And, and he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And it's interesting. Today we'll see, and you can, you can scan down. You'll see Jesus says this twice. What do you want me to do for you? He says it once here in this passage, and then we'll see it again down with Bartimaeus. Exactly quote verbatim. Uh, but it's very interesting. We need to pay attention to who he will answer with. Yes, in the affirmative, I will, I will follow through. Now, as they're headed down to Jerusalem, they can envision Jesus, the conquering Christ. It will be perhaps maybe as the Maccabean revolt had been previously, that, that this ruling king, this Messiah would usher in an, an era of peace for the people of Israel. And they're thinking in advance, well, if he becomes king, does that mean because we've been right here, right along with him, we've been super close right here with him, does that mean that um, he'll make me vice president? That uh, maybe he'll make me the commander in chief? He'll make uh, my brother here maybe secretary of state? And meanwhile, an argument ensues back and forth. No, you can be the press secretary because nobody likes the press secretary. I'll be the vice president. And you can see this bit of an argument going back and forth. And Jesus' response here is interesting. He says, can you drink the cup that I will drink? The baptism that I am to be baptized with. 
Now, this is a bit fuzzy to us because we think uh, of baptism specifically in a certain context for us as a church. Uh, But we need to back up. Both of these, the cup and the baptism, have some Old Testament imagery that I believe Jesus is drawing upon. Numerous times, the cup in the Old Testament is a picture of God's wrath. Uh, Why? Because wrath is a red thing. Uh, It involves blood, and, and the cup holds the red wine. So we think of Psalm 75, for example, where it reads, In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the, on all the wicked of the earth, and he shall drain it down to the dregs. And so in this case, the cup has to do with wrath and punishment. And the baptism can carry also a picture of, of, of punishment, even as it's a full immersion. You're getting completely in. You're being consumed by the water. There are numerous times in the Old Testament that Water sweeping over you is is a picture of judgment. Uh, Just think of the Egyptian army. When they go through the water, they are covered in in judgment by the water. Um, There's the passage uh, in in Psalms where it reads, Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. And so I believe it's in this sense that Jesus is referencing and, and alluding to this cup, this baptism, these things that were going to land on him in judgment uh, that he's saying, are, are you able to join me in this? And the apostles, they're not sensing it. They're not getting it, remember? And, and so they're, they're thinking that they're assuming this a different fate. They're, they're, they're saying we are able. Uh, this may, may indicate they're thinking a physical fight. If we go into Jerusalem and we get in the battle and there's a skirmish and I'm to be this ruling king, are you able to join me in this battle, in this fight? And they're thinking, we are. We'll pick up a sword. We'll pick up a shield. We'll join you in battle. We'll do this. We can, we can handle this. And yet Jesus makes it very clear. They will face battle. They will face judgment. And it will not be for them a war between themselves and the Romans. It will not be, as it is for Jesus, a a, a battle of atonement. But in the sense that they will follow their Lord to face persecution and trials and even death for Christ's sake. But here, on their mind, is the desire to be somebody great. There's something in each of us, in each of us, that wants deep down to be great. Even while I was preparing this message, I'm sitting in the coffee shop. I couldn't help behind me. There was two guys and they were discussing. They were talking back and forth. One guy says, oh, I've gone up and I've climbed up on this summit. Um, and I'm going to go hike on this trail this summer, and I'm going to go visit that national park. And the other guy responds, oh, well, I've hiked up on that summit two times, and I'm going to go over here this summer and hike up on that one and climb this trail and that trail. And I'm, and I'm sitting there listening in, eavesdropping, and I'm thinking, well, I've been there, and I've climbed up that one, and I haven't been on that trail. I've been on it more than they have. And, you know, the next thing I'm thinking in my mind is, I, I'm, I'd like to turn around and, and tell them these things, and I'm going to talk to them. And it wasn't just to engage them in mutual conversation. I wanted them to know that I'm somebody too, <laughs> that I've done all these things, that I've put my life uh, on the line, that I've been adventuresome, that I've lived a hundred lives. This is how it is. And I, and I began, I'm studying this passage, by the way, and all of a sudden it hit me, you fool, what are you doing? You, 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 there's something in us that just wants to be great. Do you find yourself in various ways having to be better than others? 
Do you, do you spend time rehearsing um, all the ways in your life that you've been great? Do you feel a need to let other people know in your life, ah, this is what I've achieved. This is what I've done. This is what I've been a part of. This is what I've created and made and done. Our desire for humanistic greatness, friends, is actually blinding us to what makes us great. It's no accident that here in the middle section of Mark, it opened up, this whole section opened up back in chapter 8 with a blind man being healed. And this section closes with a blind man being healed. And in the middle are a bunch of disciples who don't see and don't get it, who want to be great. And, And they foolishly argue about their awesomeness. And meanwhile, Jesus, he interjects these amazing words where he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so I ask myself, what, what are the ways that this looks like? Oh, there are a thousand. There are a million. But Derek is a good example. Derek was a deacon at his church. And he had been serving particularly well by helping the church out, by coordinating its morning services. And he spent a lot of time behind the scenes. Nobody really saw these things. And he was helping the church move along in a good direction. But the boss had come up to him and he said, hey, um, I got some great news. Finally, finally, this promotion that you've been waiting for has come up. I just want you to know, Derek, that this will be so good for you. Um, You see the pictures up there where the CEO is and the CFO. Your picture is going to be right alongside them. Um, Your office is going to be up there on the 10th story overlooking all, all the lay of the land. And, and you're, you're going to be in control of these people and this part and that part. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait for you to begin this. And, and Derek's thinking, this is wonderful. He's, oh, just, just one question, just checking to see, um, what are the hours of this new position? Um, you know, I, I, I'm just curious. And he said, well, I know you've been about 45 hours, but now you'll be going up to about 60 hours a week. And, and it got Derek to pause. He thought, you know, if I take this, I won't be able to serve in the ways that I've been serving, particularly my church. And you can see that then he decided to forego this promotion because he felt it was far more valuable to, to serve behind the scenes where nobody saw to lift up others and to help the church flourish. He valued that more or take Trisha, for example, she finally retired. Finally, after all these years, she'd been working very hard. She was finally now free. And this whole time she had been telling all her friends, she'd been plotting that as soon as she retires, she's getting out of this rain. She's going to Florida. She had picked out the spot in Florida that she wanted to move to. And she says, I'm going there. I've got this retirement spot. It'll be perfect. And she retires and finally she's free and she starts to pack her house, but it hits her. She realizes if I leave the impact that I have with my kids and with my grandkids in the area will be completely lost. And she thinks, I think I can still remain here and have an impact for the cause of Christ by loving my children well and by loving my grandchildren well. And she puts the whole decision to move to Florida on hold so that she can serve and be least of all and become first by loving others. Let me tell you about a church, a specific church. This is a church on the ocean. Church on the ocean, not church on the mountain, had an amazing building and location. 
Uh, They were financially stable. They faced many good opportunities. And as they began to face these opportunities, they began to ask themselves, what can we do as a church in which will help us with our funds, our time, our energy, and our location to lift our community up? They began to ask themselves, what can we do to leverage our resources for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom? Oh, we could build up a big empire inside. Or we could also lift up our community and thereby extend the gospel to others. All these people, these churches, these places, people asking what can they do to put the Lord and others above themselves and becoming great by becoming last. God isn't asking, friends, us to do something that he is not willing to do himself. It's what he says here in verse 45. For even, that means Jesus is joining us in this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the bitter truth is, is just a couple pages from now, that Jesus will drink the cup and he will be baptized into into the death that he spoke of. And there will be two men who will be on his right and his left. But it won't be James and it won't be John. When Jesus is lifted up in glory, it will be two thieves. One on his right who challenges Jesus by saying, aren't you supposed to be the king? Aren't you supposed to do something? The savior, the king, finish this, help us get off these crosses. And another who recognizes, who actually sees Jesus is doing exactly what he had set out to accomplish. And so he says, King Jesus, remember me. Like Bartimaeus, he says, have mercy on me, King Jesus, son of David. And this is where we turn to now as we look at this last section here at verses 35 and following, or sorry, verses 46 and following, King Jesus, the son of David. Well, if at this point you're walking with the disciples, you're probably thinking, well, here goes nothing. Our courageous leader is finally headed to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission to become the unveiled savior, the Messiah of Israel. Who knows? Maybe he's going to take the throne, become king, and he's got important business to tend to, and he cannot be bothered at this point by insignificant trivialities. They've been on the road and on the way, and nothing will stop Jesus at this moment. People are getting excited as Jesus is headed out of Jericho. And on the road, while Jesus is walking, the blind man, Bartimaeus, must have heard the commotion and the people saying loudly that it was Jesus. And so Bartimaeus, realizing who was nearby, begins to shout loudly too. Now remember, I just said that Jesus was on a mission and nothing will stop him except this blind man. Look at verse 47. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and called him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Why? Why is it that Jesus stops here? 
Well, this is truly the first time aside from the inner 12 apostles that Jesus has been correctly identified by other people. Recall the first admission about who Jesus truly was was by demons earlier on in Mark. And then finally by the inner 12, but it was just kept to the inner 12. And this is the first time outside that a human, aside from the inner 12, has made it very clear who Jesus is. So he says, son of David. And this title was highlighting that Jesus is the predicted coming Messiah. That he is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it reads, when your days are fulfilled, this is speaking to David, you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You have to understand, friend, that even though there was much confusion about the Messiah, there were certain things that were just very, very crystal clear. One of those things was that the Messiah was going to come from a particular line, from David's line. This is why Matthew painstakingly opens up his gospel by highlighting the fact that where did Jesus come from? From King David. And then the rest of the chapters highlight the fact that he is king. Mark has been obscuring this fact a little bit more up until this point. It's been more hidden. And here it's finally starting to percolate to the top so that it can be known that, yes, Jesus will not enter Jerusalem only as a servant, but he will enter Jerusalem as a servant king, the promised son of David. And that, my friends, is the one thing that stops Jesus dead in his tracks. Earlier, we read that there were many many that were shushing this man. They were hushing him. They might have been saying to to Bartimaeus in the corner, Shh, be quiet. You're a nobody. You're a poor beggar. He's here for important people. Let him go. Shut up. Know your place. But he cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And here we get in today's passage, the second time where we hear Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus does not grant James and John their desire, but here for this man who acknowledges Jesus, he's happy to stop, hear him and heal him. See this in verse 50 and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. One thing throughout the gospel of Mark that has become clear is that Jesus delights and rewards desperate faith. A sort of gutsy faith. A faith that In Christ that says, I'm really risking it all on Jesus. Either Jesus will help me or nobody will help me. Where else can I go except to Christ? That kind of faith. And so friend, I I hope that you have this sort of faith with Jesus. I hope you don't think, well, he's probably too busy for me. He's probably busy helping other people who've got it together. He's helping people who are well off. He's helping people who are very articulate. He's helping people who don't sin the way I do. And he would never, ever stop to actually bother with me. I'm insignificant. I have this ongoing sin struggle. I am not like other people. 
I hope that you would recognize here this morning. No, see it right here with this desperate faith that won't stop pursuing Jesus. That is the faith that is rewarded. Hasn't that been the pattern of this entire book? Go through. Recall, for example, the paralytic man who was lowered down from the ceiling. Was that not desperate faith? Was that not gutsy of them to do that? And they're saying, we've got no other way out. They dug a hole through the roof and lowered the man down. And what does Jesus respond with? Son, your sins are forgiven. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What about the woman who wasn't supposed to engage with Jesus? She was unclean from her bleeding that had been going on. And in fact, she shouldn't have touched him. But she, with this courageous faith and in desperation, touches his clothes. And he doesn't rebuke her for it. He commends her, saying, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. With several people, we see great faith. Even the Syrophoenician woman who seems to be stepping out of her bounds. She says, look, even the Gentile dogs look for something. Don't we get healing too? And Jesus responds to her faith by saying her daughter would be healed. It's desperate, gutsy faith. This is what we are encouraged to have with Jesus, that we would expect great things from him, that we would cry out in our desperation saying, Jesus, I've got nothing. If I don't have you, I need you. Please enter into my life. And this section of Mark opened up with the profession that Jesus is the Christ uh, by Peter on behalf of the the apostles. And here this section closes out, not with the inner 12, but a man who is weak, who is blind, who's probably never met Jesus before, essentially saying, Jesus, the Christ, have mercy on me. And friends, if I can just interject quickly, that if you think this sort of miracle is only here to show Jesus cares for the physically blind people, or if you perhaps think that these sort of miracles are recorded so that we recognize Jesus is powerful and can heal, yes, that in part I believe is true. But I think you might be missing what is essentially going on here, how the narrative works in this gospel. Jesus, who has literally told the disciples, you don't see, you don't get it. In great irony here, the blind man sees and gets it. And when he recognizes the Savior, the Christ, the son of David, he is, he's healed as well, healed physically to show outwardly what it was going on inwardly. You and I shouldn't feel pity for this man as if he's just a poor, random stranger who was blind. We should at some level look this man in the eye and say, this man is us. Oh, that we, even in our previous blindness, couldn't see. We were desperate. And we cried out, Jesus, Savior, Jesus, Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. His heart here, friends, is so worth emulating. Oh, that we would join him, not in a posture of of pomp or of pride or of posturing. Here's a man who's humbled. He's broken. He's a castaway. And he's saying, have mercy on me. And you may say, well, I'm not in a broken place like this man. But surely it's not just about physical needs, friends. It's always an issue of the heart. I couldn't help but think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, who has a heart that says, I'm good. And I thank you that I'm not like all the other wicked people, 
Let me justify the ways I'm a decent person. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who, in line with Mark here, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? They want height. They want elevation. They want to be lifted up. When Jesus turns to Bartimaeus, who is blind, and says, what do you want me to do for you? He wants mercy. He wants to see Jesus as he actually is. Now, I can't prove this, but I suspect this. This is why Bartimaeus is named, and I think many other people who've been healed, as we've seen. I think outside of Lazarus, who was Jesus's good friend. I don't believe there's other healings where we know the name of the person who is healed. Here, Bartimaeus is known. I suspect it's possible that this man ended up joining the early church and was well known. And so that when they recounted this gospel, it it could be very well, oh, this is the Bartimaeus, the one we know who was blind, who was part of the early church. Let me tell you why I suspect this. Catch this. When Jesus says to him, look at down at the passage here, go your way in verse 52, your faith has made you well. But listen, instead of going his way, he immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way, on the way to where? To Jerusalem. Do you recall back with the rich man who shows up and says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to go to heaven? And and Jesus says, well, you must, you know, check, check, check. And you must sell all of your possessions and then join me, follow me. But the man, instead of doing that, he goes away sad. Here, Jesus tells the man, go ahead. I've healed you. I've given you mercy. Go your way. But he doesn't go. He He follows Christ. What a picture of you and I. We don't just leave. We don't just get saved in the church and then go our own way. We continue to walk with Jesus, picking up our cross all the way up, even as we humble ourselves so that we are lifted up because Jesus's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It's the nature of his kingdom. Glory comes through sacrifice. Exaltation comes through going low. Healing comes through and mercy comes through desperation and crying out to the king. Faith that this Jesus is the promised Messiah. Followers of Jesus emulate him in servanthood and humility, not in rank and power. Do you recall the words I opened up with? Uh, This author of the Valley of Vision, he was once blind, but by getting low, he finally sees. He says, you brought me to the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, and that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Friends, oh, that we would be like Poor blind beggars who now see where to get bread. And we desire it all the more. And we desire to tell other people who are blind, here is where you will have mercy with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we 
we come to you uh, and we long for that day where we will see you face to face in full glory. Where in those moments we will see the fullness of the mercy that you've given us. We will follow you and join you in your kingdom uh, to be with you and rule and reign with you forever. And we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.